0: Let's open our Bibles together once more to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 22, we'll be picking up this morning with verse 63. Luke chapter 22, verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him and beating him and they blindfolded him and were asking him saying prophesy who is the one who hit you and they were saying many other things against him blaspheming when it was day the council of elders of the people assembled both chief priests and scribes and they led him away to their council chamber saying if you are the Christ tell us but he said to them if i tell you you will not believe, and if I ask a question, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, Yes, I am. Then they said, What further need do we have of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from his own Father, make us receptive to your word this morning and accomplish good in it, we ask, in Christ's name. Amen. Richard Dawkins, as you may know, is a professor and evolutionary scientist at Oxford University. And he knows roughly as much about theology as I know about biology which is to say, next to nothing. Unfortunately, his ignorance did not prevent him, almost 20 years ago, from writing a book entitled The God Delusion. It became a best-selling diatribe against anyone who has faith in God. To believe in any deity, Dawkins writes, is to commit intellectual high treason, Which would be a surprise to the most brilliant thinkers in human history prior to the 1800s. But to believe in the the God of the Bible, Dawkins goes on to say, is even worse. For he, according to Dawkins, is a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynist, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. And that's not even all he says. <laughs> but those quotations are. Are, are typical of Dawkins' attitude toward Christianity. Even unbelieving critics panned his book, describing it as shoddy and amateurish and nasty and theologically illiterate, which it certainly is. Yet that was, what, what was perhaps most shocking is the fact that there was little, if anything, in the entire book that was new. It was, in its entirety, nothing more than a rehash of what has been offered and answered for centuries. Perhaps the only thing novel about the book was the venom with which it was written. Once again, it's an example of a man presuming to sit in judgment over God, deluded by his own intellectual pride. As Solomon taught us, there's nothing new under the sun. Ever since the garden, people have presumed to sit in judgment upon God. And that's what's happening on the night of Jesus' arrest and trial. They sat in judgment over God. On that night, Jesus went through a series of trials, both civil and ecclesiastical, in which he was accused and judged and ultimately condemned to die. Generally speaking, there were two main sets of trials There were the Jewish trials, and there were the Gentile trials, the Roman trials. Each trial had several parts, which makes it difficult to keep all the legal proceedings straight, especially since, as you read through the four Gospels, some writers include some details, others include other details, and none of them include every detail. Luke 22 tells the story of the Jewish trials. We read in verse 66 that when it was day, the council of elders of the people assembled both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council chamber. So this is what Luke is focusing on, the Jewish trials. He doesn't get into the Romans yet. By this point, Jesus has already been through two preliminary trials. Today we might call them pre-trial hearings. First, Jesus appeared before Annas, who was the former high priest who still exercised a great deal of influence over Jewish affairs. And when Annas had finished his preliminary investigation, he had Jesus bound and then delivered to Caiaphas, who had become the high priest after him. Caiaphas then conducted his own pre-trial hearing. Matthew describes that in Matthew 26. Neither of these legal proceedings had any binding authority, however. According to Jewish law, the council in Jerusalem could not try a case at night, only during the day. Hence the significance of The beginning of verse 66, when it was day. The council of elders of the people assembled. In effect, this was the third part of the Jewish trial following the hearings before Annas and Caiaphas. It was at those previous trials that the outcome had already been decided. By the time Jesus appears before this council, Everyone knew what the verdict was going to be. That is what they had been up all night trying to decide. Of course, they weren't really trying to decide what the verdict would be. They were trying to decide how to justify the verdict that they had already come to even before they arrested Jesus. To give everything the appearance of legitimacy, they had to wait until the first light of day, to conduct a formal trial where they could then officially render the verdict they had already determined. This time, the whole council was assembled, including the chief priests and the scribes, we're told. Now, this council is the Sanhedrin. As you read through the Gospels, you read through the book of Acts, you hear that term, It's a group of 70 elders plus plus the high priest. And it is the highest court of law among the Israelites. And so it was the last court where Jesus would be tried before being handed over to the Romans who alone had the power to execute him. The Jews had to hand him over to the Romans because at this time under Roman occupation the Romans had not given the Jews the authority to exercise capital punishment. Only the Romans could do that. So the Jews not only had to find a way to convict Jesus according to their own law, but they also had to figure out how to get him convicted under Roman law so that the Romans would execute him. The Romans, of course, weren't all that interested in Israel's blasphemy laws. They couldn't care less about that. And so there's a lot going on in these trials. What is abundantly clear is that none of these trials were conducted with a real concern for justice. You see that in the fact that several of them took place at night, and that according to Jewish law, an execution could not take place on the same day as a sentence was handed down. They're they're going to ignore that as well. Of course, their lack of concern for justice, even proper due process, is also seen in the abuse which was hurled at Jesus when he was held in custody. Sometime after this After his nighttime hearings and before this daytime trial, Jesus was tortured. Luke tells us that in verses 63 through 65, that men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him and beating him. And they blindfolded him and were asking him, saying, prophesy, who is the one who hit you? And they were saying many other things against him, blaspheming. Today we would call this police brutality. The prisoner was totally at the mercy of the temple guards, and when they sensed that he would be condemned, they felt that they could do whatever they wished with him. And from a human standpoint, standpoint, they were certainly correct. The abuse coming from these cowardly men was in part physical as they beat Jesus with their fists, and no doubt other blunt objects. But they also subjected Jesus to verbal abuse as well. Later, the Roman soldiers would mock Jesus as king. Here, the Jewish guards mocked him as a prophet. And in that, you see the difference between the Jewish understanding of what was going on and the Roman understanding. The way that the Jewish leaders would get Rome to do their bidding in executing Jesus would be to accuse him of treason, to accuse him of claiming to be a king. It would be a political charge for Rome while it's a religious charge for Israel. These guards had heard that Jesus was a prophet, so in this perverse game of blind man's bluff, they blindfolded him and repeatedly struck him and challenged him while they were doing that to prophesy concerning who was hitting him. Name names, Jesus. Who hit you that time? Without warning, they would strike him from every side and with unexpected Blows came the taunting questions. Who was that, Jesus? Who hit you? They had turned their torture of the Son of Man into a joke. But the men who abused Jesus would not have the last laugh. Jesus knew exactly who was hitting him. Indeed, he knew everything that every one of these men had ever done. And unless these men came to repentance and faith in Christ by the end of their lives, their laughter would turn into tears. Judgment will come. And barring repentance and faith, each one of these men will face that final judgment. And it will be the one whom they beat who will be sitting on the throne, determining their judgment. Ironically, the torments Jesus suffered, which were a cause of mirth to his tormentors, were also the fulfillment of prophecy. The very men who mocked Jesus were fulfilling various prophecies about the sufferings of the Christ. Jesus himself had prophesied that he would be mocked and shamefully treated. You see that back in Luke 18, 32. He said that these abuses would fulfill the words of the ancient prophets, and they did. Isaiah, for example, foretold that the suffering Christ would be... Stricken, smitten, and afflicted. Stricken, smitten, and afflicted. Every violent blow and every taunting word demonstrated Jesus' love for lost sinners. Because he didn't have to endure it, but he did. Jesus did more than die for us on the cross. He also suffered for us on his way to the cross. Isaiah also said that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brings us our peace. With his stripes, we are healed. Just as he fulfilled all righteousness, he fulfilled all suffering. Because in order to care for his suffering people, he first had to become our suffering servant. Now Jesus is able to sympathize with his people. In our sufferings, because he too has suffered shameful cruelty at the hands of sinful men. He knows what it is like to wonder when the next painful blow will strike or to hear people laughing at him because he trusts in God. We should never think that God does not or cannot understand our pain. Even to the point of evil abuse, Jesus endured the worst things that anyone can experience and he did it out of mercy and grace. In grace, Jesus shows us how to suffer with patience and faithfulness when wrongs are being done to us. Never for one moment did he give in to a victim mentality. Never for one moment did he give in to a temptation for revenge when we are ill-treated. What is it that we ask? Why me? Or else we want to strike back in anger at people who are treating us poorly or persecuting us. But Jesus patiently endures. Now as we work our way through this passage, one of the things that we see is that within this short passage, you have a number of different titles applied to the Lord Jesus. The first is the Christ. If you are the Christ, verse 67 says, tell us. It would be an injustice for any innocent man to suffer the abuse that Jesus suffered during that long night prior to his crucifixion. But what this man suffered was an infinite injustice because of who he was and who he is. Luke tells us that the men abusing Jesus were blaspheming him. The end of verse 65. And as Luke describes what was happening, he applies these titles. He is the Christ. He is the son of man. He is the son of God. And Luke uses this word choice very specifically. He speaks of Jesus being blasphemed that these men were saying other things against him blaspheming why because the word that is translated for us blasphemy is a very particular kind of slander to blaspheme is to speak about god And as we shall see, blasphemy is the very accusation that the Jewish council would lay at the feet of Jesus. But by using this word blasphemy to describe what these men were doing to Jesus, Luke is pointing us toward his identity. He's not just any guy who is going to the cross. People were crucified under Rome's authority all the time but there's something different about Jesus. When he is mocked, when he is tortured, it is blasphemy. But who is the real blasphemer? Jesus is going to be accused of blasphemy, but he is not the blasphemer. Rather, it is those who oppose him. In the trial that follows, we're going to see these three titles that are used for or about Jesus. Christ, the Son of Man, and the Son of God. And taken together, these things show us the true identity of Jesus. Luke has been trying to help us see this throughout his gospel. He wants us to know who Jesus is. And in knowing Jesus, he wants us... To find salvation in him. As we draw now closer to the crucifixion. Luke is slowing down the story for us. So that we see who Jesus is. He would not be killed. Before making his identity very clear. And as we've said this first title that Luke mentions is Christ. And the members of the council made this the issue. If you are the Christ, tell us. Now Christ, we can't just take these things for granted anymore, can we? Christ is not Jesus' last name. It is a title. It means Messiah. Which itself simply means anointed one. The Messiah, or the Christ, is the Savior that God had promised to send and he had been promising this savior this Christ this messiah and repeating this promise ever since the fall in the garden the religious leaders try to get jesus to incriminate himself by claiming not to know whether he was the christ if you are the christ they said if you are the christ Well, of course Jesus is the Christ. Luke has been showing us that throughout his gospel. Way back at the beginning, when the birth of Christ was first announced to Mary, the angel Gabriel said, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. David's son would be the Messiah. Jesus would be Israel's anointed king, the Christ. The angels who came to the shepherds that night out in the field, said, For for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Luke later tells us that when Jesus was taken to the temple, a man named Simeon saw the Lord's Christ. And then, of course, there's the famous confession of Peter, who declared Jesus to be the Christ of God. There are no ifs about it. Jesus is the Christ. But the council couldn't see it. And if they could see it, they couldn't admit it. And so they put this question to Jesus, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask a question, you will not answer. Now the first part of that response of Jesus to the Sanhedrin is easy enough to understand. Jesus knew that if he told these men that he was indeed the Christ, they wouldn't believe him. They already had abundant evidence to uh, to this fact. He had already performed many wonders for them, miracles that only the Messiah would accomplish. If they didn't believe his works, if they didn't believe his teaching, they would not believe what he says now under this interrogation. The problem was not that they didn't have enough evidence. That is never the problem. God has revealed his wisdom and his power and his beauty in everything from the smallest snowflake to the seemingly infinite vastness of space. And the glory of Jesus is revealed on every page of the Gospels. The problem for someone who does not believe that Jesus is the Christ is not a lack of evidence, but always a refusal to accept the evidence which is given. It is not a matter of the intellect, it is a matter of the will. And so Jesus said, if I tell you, you will not believe. What may be harder to understand is what he says next. And if I ask you a question, you will not answer. And I want to know what question Jesus is thinking about. I think it's probably the most important question in the world. Do you believe that I am the Christ? We might paraphrase what Jesus means this way. If I ask you what kind of Messiah is promised in Scripture, and if I ask you whether the signs of the Messiah appear sufficiently in me, you will not give me an honest answer. Anybody who is going to be honest about this will have to come to the conclusion that, yes, I am the Messiah. And Jesus was right. These men would never give him an honest answer. Their minds were already made up. They had decided to take his life, whether he said that he was the Messiah or not. This is what unbelievers do. This is how the unbelieving mind works. there is a rabbi who wrote a book 20, 30, 40 years ago now, I forget when. But he wrote a book about the resurrection of Jesus. And in that book, he concludes, yes, Jesus did rise from the dead. but he also went on to say, but that doesn't mean he's the Messiah. (laughs) It's not a matter of the intellect. It's a matter of the will. And the question that is being asked here still needs to be asked. What answer will you give? Is Jesus the Messiah. Is Jesus the Christ? As I speak to you this morning, Jesus is asking that of you. It has been declared by the angels that first Christmas. It has been declared by Peter in his great confession. Jesus now declares it to you. Trust the words of the man who was betrayed by Judas, tried by the Sanhedrin, condemned by Pilate, crucified at Calvary. Believe that Jesus is the Savior whom God had promised to send. Because he is. He has done everything the Messiah was expected to do. He has fulfilled every prophecy spoken of the Christ. He is the Christ who has been promised through the ages. Now, there is still more to know about this man. Although Jesus would not tell his tormentors whether he was the Christ, he did tell them one of his other titles. Look at verse 69. This is still Jesus responding to the Sanhedrin. When he says, but from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So, Jesus, the Christ, is also the Son of Man. We spoke of this title not too long ago. This was far and away Jesus' favorite title for himself. He's constantly speaking of himself as the Son of Man, and he does that in every gospel account. He uses it dozens of times, more frequently than any other title. To give just one example, when he prophesied of his crucifixion and resurrection, he said the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And now Jesus is telling those very people that he is indeed the Son of Man. And of course, this has special significance. This isn't a title that Jesus just came up with out of the air. He didn't sit around thinking, what would be a really cool title? He's taking it from the Old Testament. From his own word. It doesn't simply mean that Jesus possessed humanity. Rather, it is this title that comes out of a vision that Daniel saw. A vision of the Son of Man coming in glory and divine judgment. And there in Daniel chapter 7, we read this in verses 13 and 14. I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. Now don't miss this. Remember verse 69. From now on, the son of man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days... And was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Although the Son of Man in Daniel's vision is associated with humanity, hence Son of Man, his glory comes from his deity. Son of Man is a messianic title, and it's a title of deity. When the prophet saw the Son of Man, he was a being of mighty power and awesome splendor with godlike dominion over the nations. It was the vision of a divine ruler and judge. And this was widely recognized. It would have been well known to those to whom Jesus was speaking. When they heard the phrase son of man, their minds immediately go to Daniel. They knew what he was referring to. At his trial before the Jewish High Council, Jesus claimed the glory of the Son of Man for himself. He took that title with all of its divine meaning and declared that it belonged to him and no one else. It was a term of humanity that pointed toward deity. And therefore, it was one of the best expressions he could use to encapsulate his incarnation as the God-man. And Jesus used the title of the Son of Man the same way Daniel used it. To prophesy of the final judgment. The Son of Man will come and he will sit at the right hand of the power of God. That seat of power and authority. And there he will exercise rule over the universe and judgment over the nations. And as Jesus stands before his persecutors, don't miss this. He says it's going to happen very soon. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Jesus is implying that his elevation to glory is almost at hand. And indeed it is. In a matter of days, Jesus would rise from the grave. In a matter of weeks, he would ascend to the right hand of the Father, and in a matter of years he will come again in glorious judgment to rule the nations. Hebrews 1 3 says that after making purifications for sin, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on High. Back in Luke 21:27, Jesus says that they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 5, that when he does, he will judge the living and the dead. Jesus will judge the men who now are sitting in judgment over him. This what makes what he said about the Son of Man highly ironic. At the very time Jesus is being judged, he's also claiming the right to be the divine judge over the living The time will come, therefore, when everyone who presumes to judge him, including Richard Dawkins, will be judged by him. We do not judge God. He judges us. Many people get this backwards. They assume that the real question is what they think about Jesus rather than what Jesus thinks about them. If you were Aware of what was going on in evangelicalism back in the 80s and 90s, particularly, then you might recognize the name Tony Campolo. His son, Bart, was for some time himself a pastor who eventually decided that he could not accept Orthodox Christian teaching about the sovereignty of God or his wrath against sin or the necessity of confessing Jesus as. Savior and Lord, in order to avoid eternal judgment. Bart Campolo said this, in fact, I refuse to believe any of that. If those things are true, then God might as well send me to hell. For better or worse, I simply am not interested in any God, but a completely good, entirely loving, and perfectly forgiving one. Such a God may not exist, but I will die seeking such a God, and I will pledge my allegiance to no other possibility, because quite frankly, anything less is not worthy of my worship. I am a free agent, after all, and I have standards for my God. The first of which is this, I will not worship any God who is not at least as compassionate as I am. Now, the first thing we need to say in response to this is this. God is completely good, entirely loving, and perfectly forgiving. But Mr. Campolo does not have the right nor the authority to define those terms or to determine what that looks like in practice. Now, it should not shock you to find out, that this man eventually rejected any concept of God whatsoever. He went on to become the humanist chaplain at the University of Southern California. Don't ask me what a humanist chaplain does. I have no idea. But when you read statements like that, what is shocking is not simply the rejection of cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith, One expects that. But what gets me every time, although you'd think I'd be used to it by now, is the willingness to put forth the absurd idea that God is the one who has to meet our standards. That is a picture of how deep and twisted human pride can be. It's the proud posture of our fallen nature in which we demand the right to sit in judgment over God. But Jesus claims to be the Son of Man, and if he is the Son of Man, then one day he will come in judgment over us. And every one of us needs to come face to face with our need to be ready for that day. And to ensure that before that day has come, we have bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Hear what he says about your sin and hear what he says about his way of salvation. Entrust yourself, body and soul, to Jesus, the Christ, the Son of Man. Now the religious leaders who conducted this trial understood exactly what Jesus was saying, of course. They knew the scripture, they knew the prophecies of Daniel. So when Jesus starts talking about the Son of Man, they instantly recognize that he is making a claim to divine power. But to make sure that he said what they thought he said, they double check with him. Verse 70. And they all said, Are you the Son of God then? So when they hear Jesus claiming to be the Son of Man, they equate that with a claim to be the Son of God. Don't miss that. We need to understand how those who knew what Jesus was talking about understood. How how did they understand him? And they understood that when someone claims to be the son of man, they are claiming to be the son of God. Which is why they could accuse him of blasphemy. There are still those who deny that Jesus ever claimed to be God at all. But the religious leaders who got Jesus killed knew exactly what he was saying. Indeed, this is one of the reasons why they were so angry with him. They were quite sure that he could not be God, and therefore, any claim he made of deity had, by default, to be blasphemy. Which in those days, of course, was a capital offense under Jewish law. So did Jesus really mean what they thought he meant That he was the divine son of man, the son of God? If so, he deserved to die. And so if he's willing to go far enough to claim to be the son of man, let's just let him talk some more. And see if he'll just come out with it and say that he's also the son of God. And that's exactly what happens. Is Jesus the son of God? Absolutely he is. Way back at the beginning, when Gabriel first announced his birth to Mary, the angel said that Jesus would be called the Son of the Most High. This was confirmed in his baptism, when heaven was open and the Father said, You are my beloved Son. It was confirmed again on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Peter was told to shut up. And God spoke from heaven and said, this is my son. Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, as well as the son of man. And Jesus declares this at his trial by answering this question. And saying to them, yes, I am. Now some translations at this point will read, you say that I am. And we need to understand that this is not an evasion, this is an affirmation. It was a way of saying something like this. I am, as you say, the son of God. Leon Morris offers the following paraphrase. I would not put it like that, but since you have, I can't deny it. It was not that Jesus was not fully committing himself to the truth of his deity. It's simply that he had a much fuller understanding of what it meant for him to be the son of God than his questioners did. His definition was different from theirs. And therefore, he couldn't totally agree to their statement without qualification Is Jesus the Son of God? Is he the supreme, unique, divine, eternal Son of the Father in a way that his enemies would ever understand? No. Not in a way that they would understand. They didn't believe that he is the one and only Son of God given for the salvation of sinners. Nevertheless, he could hardly deny the truth of what they were saying. Jesus is the Son of God, and he will be the Son of God, and he has been the Son of God for all eternity. When they used the term Son of God, they didn't understand it in that way. And so Jesus says, you say that I am. That is, you say that I am, and you're correct insofar as you understand it. But the reality is, you don't know the half of it. For all practical purposes, this was the end of the trial. When the scribes and priests heard Jesus claim to be the Son of God, they considered it over. They say, verse 71, what further need do we have of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. These words were spoken in condemnation by men who had been up all night trying to find a charge against Jesus that would stick in a court of law. And finally, they managed to get him to incriminate himself from their perspective. By claiming to be the son of God, he had spoken blasphemy in the presence of the entire council. That's what they thought. If only these men had answered their own question in a different way, they could have been saved. Consider carefully what they said, because when Luke put their words into his gospel, he was hoping that we would catch the irony. Indeed, he was hoping that we would answer this question the right way instead of the wrong way. What further need do we have of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. What further testimony do we need? We have heard the words of Jesus from his own mouth. He claims to be the Savior whom God always promised to send, the divine judge who will come in glory and judgment, the one and only Son of the living God. With his own lips, Jesus Christ says that he is both the Son of Man and the Son of God. What further testimony does anyone need? Having heard that testimony, everyone is now called to a choice. Will I believe him or will I call him a liar? Will I believe him or will I accuse him of blasphemy? Will I believe the testimony that he has given? If you do, you will find salvation. Salvation that only comes through the Son of God, who is the Son of Man, who is the Christ. Father, we pray that you would open hearts and minds. Father, work within those hearts which to this point have been stone and make them hearts of flesh. Father, unstop the ears which to this point have not been able to hear And give ears to hear. We pray, Father, that you would remove the veil from those who, to this point, have not been able to see. And give them eyes to see that Jesus is the Son of God and the Son of Man and the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior. It is in his name that we ask it. Amen.